Okay, so tonight we are going to be talking of the first about the first of two ordinances, baptism. Next week we will, Lord willing, cover the second, which is the Lord's table. Now we started just just with a few words last time about the idea of ordinances. <clears throat> and uh, we said that contrary to much of the way evangelical life operates, the ordinances of the church aren't Christian ordinances per se, they're ecclesiastical ordinances. And what I mean by that is that they say a lot more about what we believe about the community of faith than we do about our individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think there's, there's a tendency, particularly in the last, oh, 70, 80 years or so, to get those reversed, uh, that the, the ordinances are Christian ordinances and say something about me and Jesus, where probably the, uh, the, the balance of the biblical material and the, uh, <clears throat> and church history as well, uh, suggests that it's more about the church, which is why we call them church ordinances, and which is why we study them here. Uh, they're not Christian ordinances per se, they're church ordinances, and we'll see if we can't tease that out here. So we want to start here with baptism, baptism here, and uh, uh, I start with a statement here from John Hammett. Believer's baptism is important to us. Why? Because it is the principal means by which a regenerate church membership is preserved, okay? That is our primary mechanism whereby we ascertain who's in and who's out, and specifically ascertain that people, in fact, are true believers in Jesus Christ. This statement that Hammett makes follows on the heels of an extensive survey of Baptist confessions and manuals, and it's a bit startling to the modern Christian because this purpose of baptism is rarely emphasized today. Instead, almost exclusive emphasis is given to baptism as the believer's personal affirmation of individual participation in Christ. Faith in Christ is first step of personal uh, obedience after having uh, converted. The following is not intended to diminish that function of baptism because that is one of the functions of baptism. But as hopefully by the time we get to the end of the night, we're going to see that it's not the only function of baptism. And I don't even think the primary function of baptism. And hopefully we can, we can, we can tease that out. So what is the meaning of baptism? Well, it's twofold. Firstly, it's a symbol and public announcement of the believer's union with Christ. It's a statement that I make, I'm with Jesus. Okay. So it's a, it's a public profession of the faith that I want to, I want to be known as one who is associated with Jesus Christ. So it, specifically, it's a celebration of our union with Christ, our participation in his death, burial, and resurrection, which are illustrated in baptism, right? Uh, provided you do it correctly, right? If, if, as long as there's an immersion, there's a death, burial, resurrection to walk in newness of life and it's and the, the reason that we use immersion uh, aside from the fact that the bible tells us we should is the fact that it's it's very illustrative of what we are trying to uh, to show here that we have been connected with jesus christ we've been regenerated and will eventually rise with him uh in the in the end times some key texts here that suggest this 
Uh, Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life of regeneration. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. So it's a reminder not only of what has happened, but also what will happen in the future. Galatians 3, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, because all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Again, the imagery is rich here. Uh, We've clothed ourselves with what we've been united with Christ through baptism. Colossians 2, you have been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. And that's illustrated then by this burial with him into baptism. The next little box here, I'm going to skip for sake of time here. You're welcome to read it here. There's a little bit of a debate as to whether these verses are talking about spirit baptism or water baptism. I'm inclined to think that the uh, reference here is to water baptism as illustrating the fact that we have been spiritually united with Christ. So it's a reminder here, whenever we're reminded of our water baptism, we are reminded of the fact that we have a, we have deliberately, self-consciously associated with Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. The second meaning of baptism is that the believer has been corporately united with the body of Christ, that is, the church of Christ. Again, this is the neglected function of baptism that's largely been lost in the modern church. Water baptism is a church ordinance, an ecclesiastical ordinance, not merely a Christian ordinance. The symbolism of physical immersion draws primarily from its spiritual counterpart in spirit baptism. Note this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. For by one spirit you were baptized into this body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. So here we find that the emphasis here is that we are baptized into a body. Okay. Again, this is, this is the secondary theme of, of baptism that we find in the, in the New Testament scriptures. It's a celebration of the fact that we are part of the body of Christ, the gathered local body of Christ. So the, the baptism here is not water baptism per se. It's talking about spirit baptism. We've been united spiritually with this body of Christ, this body of believers. But the whole point of water baptism is to illustrate that, right? We are illustrating the fact by water baptism into the local church that we have been spirit baptized into the broader body of Jesus Christ. And so water baptism symbolizes on a local or visible level, what spirit baptism is accomplishing on a universal, invisible level. Another verse here, and this is uh, one very close to one that we just looked at in the previous section, Galatians 3.28. So we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, 
and have been baptized into Christ by clothing ourselves with Christ. That's verse 27, which we just looked at. But then Paul continues on to say that there's more than just this individual connection with Christ. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So he goes on then to this second function of baptism. Not only have we clothed ourselves with the righteousness of Christ, but we have gone into contract, into union with this body of other believers, uh, irrespective, of course, this is uh, drawing attention to the fact that it's not Israel. Israel, of course, was ethnically homogenous. It was just, just Israelites or Jews. Uh, but this new body is ethnically diverse. There's no Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free makes no difference. Male nor female. We're all one in Christ in this body. And that's celebrated by baptism. Okay, and so in this passage, we find that both of the functions, the individual and the corporate, are inextricably united. So baptism does both of these things. It's both a profession of personal faith and individual union with Christ, and also the entry point into union with the multi-ethnic body of Christ, the local church. Number two, then. The uniqueness of water baptism in this age demonstrates its significance to the local church. Uh, Part of the Great Commission is baptism. I think we sometimes tend to think, okay, Great Commission ends when people get saved. No, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, there's actually a string of expectations in the, uh, in the, in the Great Commission. We're supposed to go teach the nations baptize them, which I think is effectively code for organize them into local churches, and in that context, then teach them to do whatever I've commanded you, okay? That's the Great Commission. And so uh, so the uniqueness of water baptism to this age is demonstrated by this Great Commission that is given to the church. Um, The argument here is that if water baptism is merely symbolic of salvation or redemption, then we would have seen baptism in every age, but we don't. We don't see baptism in the Old Testament. We only see it in the New Testament because baptism does more than illustrate salvation. It also introduces us to this brand new organism, this body of Christ, the church. Uh, And the fact that there is no baptism in the Old Testament indicates that it has unique significance for the present age that it didn't have in the Old Testament. The reason that we didn't have baptism in the Old Testament is not because people didn't participate in the benefits of the cross work of Christ. People were saved in the same way in the Old Testament as they are in the New. The reason there wasn't baptism in the Old Testament is because there wasn't a church. Okay, That new multi-ethnic body is something that is that is unique to the present age. Number three, then, we also find that this institution of water baptism is a precursor to inclusion in the New Testament community of God, which demonstrates its significance for local church life. So those who received his word were baptized, then added. And this is the sequence we see throughout the New Testament. First uh, Peter 3, the significance of baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body. That's not... 
I suppose that could perhaps be a function of baptism, uh, but that's not the purpose of it, right? Rather, what we are doing is symbolizing here this pledge of a good conscience toward God and toward the people of God. So when we get baptized, we are saying, more than just, I'm with Jesus. We're actually saying, I pledge, I covenant together with this body of believers to participate in the life of this body. I'm going to be a part of it. Okay. Colossians 2, in him you were circumcised by the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2 is an interesting passage uh, because it actually draws a connection here between baptism and circumcision. It draws a comparison and it also draws a contrast, okay? Uh, Reformed folk are, are quite fond of, uh, pointing out the, the comparison. Uh, Baptists tend to be more, uh, more concerned with the contrast, but they're both there, okay? They're both the same in one sense, that they are entry rights into the respective communities. Circumcision brought one into the Old Testament community. Baptism brings one into the New Testament community. But there's a contrast, and the contrast is the nature of the community. Okay, The community into which one was circumcised in the Old Testament was a mixed community. It wasn't a regenerate community. It was, it, it was tied together by ethnicity, not by faith. Okay, There wasn't credo circumcision, right? It was actually, you were just born, you're eight days old, you got circumcised, you were in. Okay. That's not how it works with baptism. You don't, you don't get born, baptized, and in just automatically. Rather, you have to be a believer first. You have to have a credible confession of faith in order to be brought into this different kind of community. Uh, The community of the church is different in kind uh, from that of Israel. Okay, so water baptism, then, is the entry right into the New Testament people of God, the church. And as I, as I suggested, uh, it is at least as important as the individual redemptive truth that is being illustrated. In fact, perhaps we could make the argument uh, in, in terms of biblical material and the history of the church that the role of water baptism as an entry right into the church is actually the more important emphasis, the greater emphasis in the New Testament. <clears throat> so we ask the question, then, what's the relationship of baptism to church membership? Well, they go together, okay? Uh, in Hiscox's words, baptism doesn't technically admit one fellowship of, of the churches, but it stands at the door, Okay. So in order to get into the local church, baptism is the ticket. Baptism is the entry right to bring one in. And so when someone comes to the church and says, hey, I would like to get baptized, we need to explain to them. Okay, well, if you do that, you're saying two things. One, you're saying, I want to be with Jesus. Number two, I want to be a part of this church. Okay, because both of them go together. Uh, so if somebody comes to the church and says, I'd like to get baptized, but I really don't want to join, then the response is, well, 
then you probably don't understand really what baptism is all about. Because baptism is more than just saying I'm with Jesus. It's a statement here that I want to be part of the local body here, uh, the body of Christ. Okay. And so we suggest here in this, in this, uh, this, uh, in these, these notes here that water baptism shouldn't occur unless one is willing to be received into the membership of the baptizing body. So to administer baptism in, in such a scenario, you know, if, if he doesn't want to come in is to get, is to gut baptism of much of his meaning. So, uh, and of course this is going to come back to, you know, lead to other questions as we, as we work our way through what, what happens if somebody comes and was baptized wrongly. What do you do? Well, that's still coming. But for now, we're just sort of establishing the normal procedure. When you want to get baptized, it is a statement that I want to be part of the body of Jesus Christ, the local body. Okay? So, how is it administered? Okay, well, we said firstly that the church is the only proper administrator of baptism. It's a church ordinance not merely a Christian ordinance. So only the church has as its property the guardianship of the truth, right? We are the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is charged with making sure, specifically in this case, that anyone who wants to be a part of the community belongs. That that they, they have done what is necessary and they are what they need to be in order to be a legitimate part of the church of Jesus Christ. And so the church alone is qualified to examine and approve the validity of a believer's profession of faith. So we find examples of this throughout the book of Acts, where there was an examination to discover whether a person who wants to be part of the body is actually suitable uh, to the the church, because we don't want to corrupt the church. Again, remember our opening statement uh, by John Hammett here? We want to, we, 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 we want to make sure that the church's purity is protected because the integrity of the church is at stake here. And so it's the, it's the responsibility of the church to examine someone to, to, to ascertain that he actually belongs in the community. The symbol itself, I say here, assumes identification with a visible manifestation of the body of Christ, the local church. And so if we have baptisms that are carried out by parachurch organizations, you know, Salvation Army or, or whatever the case, family gatherings, backyard pools, field baptisms by military chaplains, those don't, they don't qualify. Uh, and you say, well, that seems a little bit harsh here. I mean, what if somebody gets, you know, if somebody gets saved on the battlefield, are we going to deny them baptism? And the answer is yes. Uh, and, and the reason for this is not because we're harsh or mean, but because baptism has significance that we don't want to go uh, un- undetected here. Okay. The purpose of baptism is not to complete your salvation. Now, if, if that were the case, it would be pretty important that, uh, that, that, that soldier get baptized before he goes into battle the next day, right? Okay. But again, that's not the purpose of baptism, just to, 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 to complete our salvation. In fact, the primary purpose of baptism is to say, I want to be part of the body of Christ. Okay. 
And in order to do it properly and carefully, the church needs to examine that individual to make sure that he, in fact, belongs to the church. Uh, it, it's not as though you've lost, it's not as though, you know, I got saved, but I didn't get baptized, therefore I'm going to have a lower place in heaven or something. No, that's not how it works, right? Uh, so you delay to do baptism the proper way, okay? Now I say here it's common for Baptists being rightly vigilant against sacramentalism, you know, that, that, that baptism actually does something to contribute to your salvation. And also there's this concern between the clergy and the laity. You know, we, we don't want to uh, put the priests up there and the regular people down here. Uh, sometimes Baptists have been a little bit lax in the administration of baptism. It's part, and, and, and there's sometimes good reasons for that. You know, the church can appoint whoever they want to administer baptism. It can be the resident elder or pastor, usually the, the most common, a visiting elder, can be a deacon, can be a regular member. In fact, since the one who is baptizing doesn't transmit any grace to the recipient of baptism, that person could actually prove to be an unbeliever, and it's not as though the, the, the baptism is somehow damaged by that. Like I was at a, I was at a church you know, a few years ago where I was, uh, I was an interim pastor, and, uh, and the pastor apostatized, left the faith. And there were some folks there in the church who said, well, you know, he baptized me. Is my baptism no good now? And the answer is nah, that, that, that doesn't affect the quality of your baptism here. Now, it's quite unfortunate and, 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 and unnerving uh, to know that the person who baptized you actually apostatized. But it's not as though your baptism is for that reason invalidated, okay? Because it is the church that has appointed someone to baptize. The church baptized you, okay? And they simply appointed that man to do the actual act of baptizing. Okay, so there's nothing here uh, about the person uh, or or even the location per se that that matters here. There, there. Yeah, so it doesn't matter who does it. The church can appoint anyone. It doesn't have to be done inside a church building. Okay, it can be done at a swimming pool, but the church has to be the administrator. That's the one thing that we just sort of can't. We can't let let the pedal up on. Okay, the church is that that body that 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 uh, baptizes, not mom and dad, not a military chaplain, not a doctor. You know, it's no, it's the church and someone that that church has appointed to carry out the baptism. I think we have time here to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. He's sort of uh, an outlier here. And it's caused caused Baptists a bit of grief over the years because you know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, Philip, the evangelist, uh, is ministering and uh, all of a sudden he is taken up and finds himself alongside a chariot in, uh, you know, on the, on, on the road into, from, from Israel into Africa. And uh, there's this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading through the book of Isaiah, trying to figure out what it, what it means and what the significance is of it. Uh, Philip, uh, by divine miracle, appears on the road, 
He's invited up into the chariot, explains what's going on. The Ethiopian understands, believes, accepts Jesus Christ, and is gloriously converted. And then here's where it gets a little bit uh, dicey here. He says, well, what's what's to hinder me then from getting baptized? Now, you know, and as a, as a good baptism, Baptist, I, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, there's no church here. Uh, but but actually, we find that Philip gets out of the chariot, brings them down, finds some water that's that's sitting there, baptizes them in the water, and they and then and you know Philip's whisked away. Uh, the the eunuch continues on. So, what do we do with this story? Because it doesn't seem like much of an ecclesiastical ordinance in this case. Well, I think there's the the, the purpose of this story is not to give us you know, a, a proper understanding of how to administer baptism. I mean, it's part of the story, but I don't think that's the purpose of the story. The story is has a different purpose. So let, let's look at the story itself here, and I think we find some gaps and holes uh, that I think give us room uh, to maintain the Baptist understanding of, of baptism. First, it's a descriptive passage. Okay? It doesn't actually say they did the right thing or did the wrong thing. And and for that reason, you know, narrative sections of scripture are usually less able to sustain theological freight than, say, the didactic portions of the scriptures, which are the the, the letters, uh, uh, the the epistles that Paul and Peter and others wrote. We find some very clear instruction about baptism in the letters that are written that probably should rise to the top of our list of clear passages that teach us exactly how we're supposed to carry out baptism. That doesn't mean we can just ignore Acts chapter 8, but it does suggest that the weight of prescription falls on letters rather than stories, okay? And as we're going to see in our next point, this story is not a complete story, okay? There's a lot of details left out. I think sometimes we get this idea that, you know, there's this one guy sort of just charging through the, through the desert on a chariot and there's, there's Philip standing in the middle of the road. And so the two of them, uh, connect and they, they have this conversation, but that's, that's not how people traveled in the ancient world. There would have been an enormous entourage for safety's sake. Uh, there, there, there would have been probably no less than a score of people and probably considerably more. This was a large group of people traveling through uh, the desert. People didn't travel alone in those days. And so there's, there's lots of details that are left off. Okay. And so, you know, and there's a lot that can be packed into those details. It wasn't the purpose again of this passage to give us the details about baptism, but rather to explain how the gospel is spreading into Africa. Okay. So we're unaware of the details of the story. Was the eunuch baptized alone? Did others join in? Could it be that, as church tradition suggests, that this event marked the original organization of the church in Africa? I mean, you, you read in the, uh, the literature of the early church, it suggested that this is the formation of the African church and that the eunuch went on to be a great leader in the African church. Maybe that's true. We just don't know. And so to radically adjust ecclesiology based on the absence of material seems to be a little bit of a, of a dangerous thing to do. 
Thirdly here, it's also a formative passage. And uh, so the normative value of this story for the church can be questioned. Um, Philip is a miracle-working evangelist. I mean, we just don't have them today, right? Okay. We, we, we don't have a figure like Philip in the church today. So there's no contemporary equivalent. So he's an evangelist. Uh, um, probably the closest thing we have is a missionary uh, church planter. And if that is the, the case, he's probably baptizing at the behest of a local church. Now, I, I, I remember, you know, years ago, I was talking to uh, a Rob Howell. And uh, we were talking about how churches are initially organized on the mission field. And he was talking about how some of his his ecclesiology uh, was strained a bit when he went to Africa, because he was he goes into Tanzania, he can he uh, through through the through the through the power of the gospel, several people are converted. He wants to organize them into a local church. He wants to baptize them into a fellowship, a covenant community, but there, there isn't one yet. <laughs> okay. And so he's in a formative situation. And actually, because he is a, was a missionary of inner city Baptist church, because he had no place to baptize them into, he actually baptized those individuals into inner city Baptist church which perhaps is a head-scratcher because, you know, people at Inner City Baptist Church didn't know about it. At the same time, we had commissioned him to plant churches. And so being a formative ministry, uh, as, as, as that was, but that's, that's the comparison here that we have to Philip. And it appears as though that as a missionary church planter, Philip has been sent out by churches to plant churches. And so to, to suggest here that uh, he just, you know, baptized this one guy by himself in the wilderness and, 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 you know, with the parted ways and that's the end of the story is probably, uh, it's probably really reducing the story, uh, from, from, uh, from what, uh, from what was actually happening here. So all of that comes together to suggest here that a lot more is going on in this story than giving us details about how the church is supposed to practice baptism. Okay. So all, all that to say is I'm not sure that that kills off uh, the Baptist understanding of, of baptism by immersion. Any questions on that? I know that's a, that's a, that's a complicated one. Uh, you're, you're muted, Wes. You're still muted. For some reason, I'm not hearing you. Is anybody else hearing Wes? No. Yeah, we're not hearing you, Wes. I don't see where he's muted either. Yeah, you're not muted, but uh, I'm not hearing you. <laughs> I have one question about okay. where does John the Baptist uh, baptisms fall in? Well, remember, John John contrasts his baptism with the baptism that is going to occur starting at Pentecost. Remember, he says, this is a baptism for repentance, illustrative of repentance for the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. But there is coming a baptism, which is much different from and better than what I am doing. So John the Baptist baptism is not to be confused with Christian baptism or but the baptism. He's had a lot of washing ceremonies, right? Would that... Mm-hmm. 
would they have recognized John the Baptist, that baptism as more of a washing ceremony or not? Yeah, it's, it, it probably would have had to do something with the, their, their sectarian groups that would operate in the wilderness there um, in uh, around the Dead Sea. And there was a lot of ritual washing that took place um, in anticipation of obedience. Okay. And so, so what John the Baptist's baptism was is something different than church baptism. Um, yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't get them confused as being the same thing. John the Baptist wasn't the first Baptist. <laughs> I can't hear you, Wes. No. But we'll, we'll move on and come back to you if you, if, if we can, fig- if we can figure that out. Sometimes. Just a matter of unplugging a microphone and plugging it back in. So the procedure for baptism here, the church is the one who organizes it. Secondly, then ascertains that the candidate understands the gospel, right? He grasps the necessary content of the gospel and can give a credible profession of faith. Because again, that's the point of baptism is to guard the church and guard the purity of the church and to guard the regenerate membership of the local body. If at all possible, this evaluation should be made by the whole church. And I know this this can be difficult, particularly if we're talking about a large church, Uh, but since the whole church is tasked with maintaining the purity of the church, as many people in the church as can be involved in this process, the better. I think ideally... Uh, someone who wants to be a part of the church ought to be able to stand up in front of the church and explain. And doesn't have to be, you know, flowery terms, but in simple terms, what it, what it means to be a believer and why I want to be a part of this community. And he ought to be able to do so simply but successfully uh, to the satisfaction of those who are listening. Okay. The examination is threefold. Church needs to make sure that the candidate understands the gospel. Second, the church must ascertain that the candidate is aware of and willing to submit to the standards and duties of membership established by the church. Again, it's it's not just a statement, I want to be with Jesus, but rather I want to be a part of this church. And to be a part of this church, there are some founding documents. There are some central beliefs. There are some expectations that are going to be laid upon a new member, which is why you have a, an application for membership at uh, at your church, which I think is just a, a dandy thing. It's a very important thing. Um, and so people are aware right up front, this is what the expectations are. These are the things that I must believe and profess. And this is what's going to happen if I, if I, if I actually back away from this. Okay. And so those are the kinds of things that are very important to let people know as they are being examined uh, for baptism, because we don't want to bring someone in hastily and then find ourselves in a bad situation where, okay, we brought him in real quick and then, but, but he doesn't believe what we believe or, or he doesn't really want to be a partner in the, in the, in the gospel ministry. Now we've got a Now we've got a sticky situation that we could have avoided if we were more careful at the front door, making sure that the person understands very clearly what the expectations of church membership are. And then thirdly, the church must affirm the candidate's con- that the candidate's conduct corresponds with his profession. That is, 
He doesn't live in a way that is completely contrary to the gospel. And again, the reason is because if you find out, you know, okay, so you, 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 in your zeal to bring somebody into the church, you neglected to discover the fact that, you know, he's got, he's got a live in girlfriend with him. And for that reason, he's living in sin and he's going to come under church discipline. Again, you don't want to be hasty in bringing someone in. Uh, because that can, that can lead to a rather sticky situation. So you want to make sure that the person understands the gospel, is willing to be a participant in the life of the church according to the expectations that they have established, and then also has a life that matches, not perfectly, but matches, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the expectations of the Christian gospel. Okay. Which leads then to the question, if, if, if the church has to discern all of these things, uh, how quickly should we go about this? I mean, it's, it seems like there's a lot that the church has to do to make sure that baptism should be carried out. And so the question is, is there ever a delay? Should we ever delay between someone getting saved and someone getting baptized? Now, we have the biblical uh, pattern, and the pattern is pretty swift, right? People get saved. They're baptized, you know, it, within minutes, it seems. Okay. And so oftentimes there's a, there's, the, the, we look at that pattern and say, there it is. There's, there's proof positive. As soon as someone gets saved, you get them baptized, <coughs> get them through the pool and into the membership immediately. But there's a couple of reasons where I think that, that perhaps give us a little bit of a pause before we, before we go that route. One, Biblical baptism always involved adults who had a clear understanding of their decision where the modern church often deals with children or others who don't understand what they are doing. I think that that's, that's something that gives us a reason to just slow things down a little bit. Secondly, biblical baptisms took place in a milieu where embracing Christ and the Christian message meant immediate social ostracism. So people would not make this kind of a decision lightly. So the decision to follow Christ and to be baptized was a very solemn, serious thing with, with repercussions for life. So rarely would someone uh, in, uh, want to come into the membership in the local church if they weren't already counting the cost. So, so again, some of the, some of the reason for delay um, is, is, is disappears there. And then thirdly here, I want to just say something about history and the rise of speedy baptisms. It's a relatively recent feature of Baptist life. It starts probably with the Campbellite uh, idea. Some of you are familiar with Campbellism. Um, in fact, I believe there's a, there's a mega church not too far from, uh, from, uh, where you're sitting there and well, you're sitting all over the place there in Trenton. There's a Campbellite church that believes in baptismal regeneration. If you believe in baptismal regeneration, you want a snappy baptism because it completes salvation. And so there was this, back in the 19th century, there was this surge of Campbellite baptisms. And so this is probably the historic reason that baptism became so snappy. Okay. Before the Campbellite movement, we didn't see this. There was a a a, 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 a relative reserve and a measured carefulness 
uh, that would take place before baptisms took place. After the Campbellite movement, there was an acceleration during the next century as regard for baptism as an entry right fell away. Okay, so all you're doing is saying, I'm with Jesus. So why do you have to hesitate? Just just baptize him. And so what was lost here then was the function of baptism as an entry right into the church and a means of preserving the purity of the church. And so so that's that contributed then to these these snappy baptisms, I said. And then um, it, it it also then became some, something of a sociological kind of thing. So my my hesitation here is that uh, sometimes we can be a little careless uh, in the way we go about baptisms if we are too if we are too hasty. It does seem that the church has a role and a solemn role, a careful role to make sure one they understand the gospel, that they understand what they're getting into in terms of the expectations of the church. And that they and and, and that they are that are buying into uh, the doctrines uh, of the uh, church as it stands. Okay, any questions on that? Yes, sir. Um, can you hear me now? Okay, I can hear you. Um, how how thorough do you have to be? Because I know of people that have professed faith, they got baptized. They're hanging around the church for a while, and then the next thing you know, they fly the coop and they're living with somebody and they're in and out and that kind of stuff. How do you really know? I yeah, mean, you can't. Right, you you can't always ever know. There's this there's this uh, idea. Sometimes you I don't know if you've heard this phrase. It's sort of a, a popular phrase in Baptist life, and it's the judgment of charity. Okay, and the idea here is. That we can't know everything. Right. We can't know everything that can be known. We can't, we can't know the sincerity of the person who is coming forward for baptism. And so we do the best we can, ask the requisite questions, and assuming that the person is honest and the people that we're talking to are honest, we give them the judgment of charity. So again, there, we shouldn't have a long delay. But uh, I think it's appropriate for have, to have at least enough of a delay to ascertain that, in fact, these things are true, okay? And then in the absence of any reason to believe otherwise, we give them the judgment of charity. Now, you know, the fact of the matter is there are going to be those who will apostatize, who will walk away from the faith, and, and we're going to get into church discipline, Right. That's uh, that's just just the way things are because we can't know we're finite we, we we can't know as God does whether that person is sincere in his faith but that's that's generally the answer that's given this judgment of charity. Okay. Another question here that's sometimes asked is should we have an age requirement? <coughs> I mean does 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 a child have to be six eight ten sixteen? How old does a child have to be? Uh, in order to receive baptism, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, again a, a, a tight question that's asked. Uh, there are, um, again, the history of Baptist life. Uh, if we look at that, we find that the average age of baptism is in the mid-teens. Um, it's, it's really only again in the last century or so 
that we've seen the baptismal ages creep down to eight, six, four. Um, and again, I think oftentimes that's because of a confusion about the purpose of baptism. Um, it is a t- it, there's a lot of factors that go into this question, into this question. And I, I have down here some, uh, s- several prominent Baptist figures who have age limits. John Piper says 11. John MacArthur says age 12. Mark Dever is probably the most stringent. Uh, he and in, he insists that a person be an adult. Okay. Uh, that is someone who can speak for himself before the church. He, he's not speaking through his parents. Right. So it's, uh, and so he, uh, he has a, he has a very careful definition. They have to have chosen their own religion, chosen their own career, established their own home. Okay. And now they're making decisions on their own rather than as part of a family unit. And so he, so he's probably the most stringent here. It actually becomes quite helpful legally speaking though, right? And we, we, we tend to have some tensions here when we bring a child into membership in the church and then find out that there has to be a church discipline situation. You know, that happens. It's going to hit the news. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to throw up a 14 year old girl out because she got pregnant. You, you know, you know, yeah, that, no matter how cautious you are, that's going to hit the news when you discipline a 14 year old girl out of your church. And, and so, so there's, there, there are actually some practical reasons why it could be a good idea to delay baptism. But I think it, it I, I think we can be a little bit pragmatic if that's the only thing we're thinking here. Uh, probably we should be thinking in terms of, <coughs> the, you know, in some senses, the psychology of children. Okay. Uh, children oftentimes are intellectually, psychologically, and philosophically immature and incapable of understanding what it means to make a life commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. And, you know, it, again, it's not just a statement of, I want to associate with Jesus. It's a statement that I want to be a partner and a participant in the life of the church. So I, I, I've been one over the years that has been one who's urged caution I'm not going, I don't go as far as Dever and in, in saying that you can only baptize an adult. Uh, I believe that, uh, uh, you probably can safely baptize children younger than 18. Uh, at the same time, I think there is good reason for a church to be cautious, uh, in, in establishing, uh, a, you know, so what ends up being something of a junior membership at times in the life of the church. And I, I think, you know, I, I'm a little bit tongue in cheek here, but oftentimes that's what happens, right? A child is brought into the church and they're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to do this and that in the church, but they're, but they get some of the privileges. And so you end up with something of a junior membership here. And, and I think there is something to avoid here. And so, um, I think in general, we've sort of created within our churches a, 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 a junior Christianity that is, that is sort of less than real Christianity. And, uh, I think that, that can, that can, that can lead to some bad fruit, uh, ultimately. So again, I'm not, I'm not going to give an absolute statement here of an answer here, but some of the factors that go into it, you can read up on and, uh, and see what you think there. Any thoughts here about 
about that issue. And you know, it can get it can get really really tense, particularly if you you know if you've got some someone in the church who say, "I want my kid to get baptized," and you know it's it can it can it can it can be uh, something that can cause trouble. Um, but uh, I think uh, if a church is careful to explain their stance and, and some of the circumstances and factors here uh, detailed, I think we you, you can navigate those waters. Okay. Third question here is to what degree must a candidate agree with the church's doctrinal statement and show evidence of a changed life in order to qualify? Okay. Does he have to be have perfect behavior? Does he have to have every single point of doctrine the same as uh, the uh, the published doctrinal statement of the church? And uh, different churches answer that question differently. But I say in keeping with the above, a candidate for membership should at a minimum be able to, A, clearly articulate the gospel, and secondly, offer no dissent with the clear teachings of Scripture. Many churches do also require further subscription to a creed or a covenant. I think your church does that. And while it's probably inadvisable for a church to include too much detail in that, uh, every church is sovereign in this matter. So they can decide what needs to be agreed with. I think uh, at, at any rate, uh, there, every, every church should suggest that, you know, we might bring you into membership without having absolute agreement, but you can't publicly disagree with what the church's uh, published stance is on, on points of doctrine. Otherwise, you end up with a, with a divided church. With respect to a changed life, no church, of course, can demand entire sanctification. You can't expect someone to be perfect. But no candidate who can be charged with biblically defined sins of which he is unrepentant should be brought into membership. So if someone is living in sin in an unrepentant state, they shouldn't be baptized into membership until that problem is cleared up. Okay. Pause here for any questions that you might have. Okay. So back to the procedure here, the church can appoint anybody it wants to immerse the candidate. Usually it's the pastor. But if the pastor isn't there, uh, it's not as though he's got some sort of magical powers uh, that make his baptism better than someone else's. You can appoint anyone at all. Okay. Uh, you can even have someone who's not a member of the church. You know, if you, you know, if you're without a pastor, for instance, you might borrow a pastor from some, you know, the church next door uh, to help you out here. There's no biblical mandate here in this issue. I do suggest here, and I, you know, I, I should, I probably should have asked somebody before I mentioned this, because I don't want to, I don't want to uh, push back again in, against any practice that your church has here. I, I personally think it's, it can be a bad idea uh, for parents to baptize children. Um, there's nothing that in the Bible that says this is wrong or inappropriate. And if a church decides to do it, then they're, they've got the prerogative to do that. I think sometimes that sends a signal though, um, that church membership is secondary to family membership. 
and that we are first members of a family and then members of a church. And this patriarchal figure is actually the one who is guarding the life and health of the church members rather than the church itself. Uh, the, the church is directly responsible for each of its members. Uh, it's not, it, it doesn't, it's not a, 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 a church of, you know, family leaders who then actually police the, 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 the spiritual health of their families. The church actually is, is charged with maintaining the spiritual health of all of its members, not just the men, but also their wives, their children, etc. So I think sometimes we can send a signal, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that the family, um, and the church, uh, have competing authority. And I think that's a, that's a bad idea. Again, I, I can't look at the scripture and say that a father can't baptize his children biblically, particularly if the church gives its blessing. But I think sometimes it can send a, a signal that's, that's, uh, that's a bad precedent. After this, finally, we have the vote to bring the baptized person into membership. It should take place immediately. Um, I, I would say in the same service, um, because you're, you, in fact, there's, there's almost a sense in which we sometimes get it, get it out of order. We really should have the church voting to baptize someone into membership rather than having them get baptized and then a vote to bring them in. <laughs> uh, I, I, in theory, you could end up with a problem that, okay, the church goes ahead and baptizes them. And then, the, and then, and then the church comes along afterwards and say, okay, let's have a vote. And they vote no. <laughs> I've never seen it happen, but in theory, that could happen. Uh, probably the, the more ideal uh, situation would be that the church votes to baptize a person into membership. And, and, but I, I'm not likely to, uh, change the, uh, the patterns and policies that have been entrenched in the American church for, for centuries now. <laughs> so, uh, so we want to make sure that a vote takes place and takes place as quickly as possible. Okay. And, uh, then the question, can a candidate be baptized, but not brought into the membership of the local baptizing body? And the answer is no, because that's the purpose of baptism, to bring someone into the membership of the baptizing body. If he wants to be baptized into a different church, then he should wait until he's at the church or she. Okay. And then finally here, our last point here is that baptism is properly received only once. Now, I, I recognize there is, there could be a little bit of confusion here. Uh, we are only baptized, we are only saved once, and so we're only baptized once. Of course, you could make the argument, yes, but you could join more than one church over the course of your life and could be baptized twice, because that's one of the purposes of baptism. And it's true, uh, there are, there are the, this dual function of baptism, uh, but we find no reason in the scriptures to suggest that people were baptized into multiple churches. They were baptized once, illustrative of the fact that they have been united with Christ and with the, with the whole body, the universal body of Christ. And so, uh, there's, there's no reason to think that there should be more than one baptism. Now, it is true, of course, 
that some people can be baptized um, and and determine later on that their faith had been previously disingenuous. And so they would ask, oh, can I have, can I get really baptized this time? And the answer, of course, is yes. And the reason is because that first baptism wasn't valid baptism because he wasn't a believer. Okay. But all things being equal, there's only one baptism. You're only baptized once because you're only saved once. Okay. Which means then, if you're going to another church and you've already been baptized, now the church is going to have to decide whether to accept your baptism and what are the reasons that they should, what are the things they should look at? Number one, have a valid meaning. It's a symbol of the believer's union with Christ and with the body. Okay. Not just, not just a matter of getting wet in a swimming pool in the backyard. Okay. As a family gathering. Okay. It has to be a formal symbol of the believer's union with Christ, which means that it has to be a believer's baptism. There has to be a, a valid administrator that is a church. Now, the church may take the, you know, the church may go to a swimming pool. The church may go to a local lake. The, the church may gather in a building that has a baptistery. Okay. That's negotiable. But the church has to be the administrator of the ordinance. And then there has to be the valid mode. That is immersion. Because if we're not immersed, then the symbolism is for that reason wrong. Okay. It's not as though we're sprinkled, uh, or effused with the Holy Spirit. That's not the, that's not the meaning of baptism. Not the meaning of the word. It's not the meaning of the symbol. So those three things I think have to be in place in order for a baptism to be considered credible or acceptable uh, when transferring membership. It has to have a valid meaning, believer's baptism, a symbol, symbolic of one's union with Christ, and a valid administrator, a church, and the valid mode then of immersion. If you have those things in place, and there may be other minor details and squibbles and squabbles about what uh, any, any given church meant by uh, their baptisms. But if you have those three things in place, uh, to me, those things together constitute a, a valid baptism uh, that can be transferred then from one church to the other. Okay? I know we sort of were speedy at the end there, but uh, any questions, uh, wrap-up questions here about baptism? Very last sentence, you have... Is that trying? Trying? Trying. Trying to merge. The uh, Brethren Church? That's the Brethren Church. They would would baptize three times in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, baptized forward. Um, Right. Which is pretty close. Uh, It's it's not exactly union with Christ, but actually participation in the life of the Trinity, which isn't exactly the same. There's probably room for for a debate on that one. I, I would be a little bit hesitant to accept that kind of, uh, of, of a baptism, but I would, I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that a church that does is, is somehow not Baptist or something. Like that. See, my cousin went to grace. Right. And when his parents moved down, he's a pastor in the church. <laughs> his mom refused to get rebaptized that way. She goes, I almost caused a church split. So <laughs> she's exaggerating, but it was an issue, I guess. Yeah, it can be. 
Sorry, Wes, I, I again, I still can't hear you. I hold your space bar down, Wes. Yeah, hold your space bar and see if that happens. The keyboard. You know, it, it's not a mute problem. My, my guess it's a microphone problem. We could do charades. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Wes. Uh, we, we can perhaps give you a minute at the, at the beginning next time just to see if we can't uh, follow up with that. But, uh, yeah, we're not hearing you. We're not hearing you. Sorry about that. Is there another semester after this or is this? The- just one more. Eschatology, end times. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah that's, yeah, that's the last semester in the sequence. Then do you start all over again for the folks that didn't have the first? Uh, we've made no plans moving oh. forward. So. Okay. So that's baptism next week, uh, Lord's Table or Communion. And then we'll wrap things up uh, for the semester. Okay. See you next week.